0: If you would go ahead and grab your seats. Man, I love it that uh, I got to tell you to find your seats. What a great church we got a lot of people who want to get to know each other. Uh, Listen, welcome. If it's your first time at Double O Community Church, my name is Adam Robinson, senior pastor here, and I'm thrilled that you're gonna get to worship with us today. Uh, And if it is your first time, you might be very nervous thinking, how long is this sermon gonna be? Uh, He is starting way early. Uh, I know we're doing some things a little bit differently in the sermon series that we're in, uh, where we're going to be uh, talking about worship, but also practicing that worship at the back end of our service, just as much as the front. And so we're gonna go ahead and dive into the sermon for today, and then we'll we have a chance not only to worship through song, but also to come to the table today. So grab your Bibles if you will. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our new sermon series called Reaction. We learned last week that worship is a response when you try to figure out what worship is, it's not really about us. We are responding to who God is and what he has done. And all true worship and all of its forms is that reaction to him. We're we'll learning about all the different forms and how to do that over the course of the series. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 is where we're going to be in just a moment. Hopefully you've got a copy of God's Word. If you don't, we do have a copy there on the app if you want to download that. Uh, after today, we do have copies outside, if you would like to grab one for yourself, uh, but you can always look on with somebody else nearby. First Corinthians chapter 11 verse 17. as we continue to talk about worship. Uh, look, it is a, a truism that all of us have some opinions about worship, do we not? Uh, We just do. I imagine if you came in here today, we all have opinions when it comes to worship, different opinions, different attitudes. I know this for a couple of reasons. First off, I have my own opinions when it comes to worship. Now, I know that shocks you that I will have an opinion on anything, right? But I do. I have strong opinions when it comes to worship. I also know that you have opinions on worship because you've told me. Uh, I have heard them, all of them, and some of them are positive and some of them are negative, and that is okay. Why? Because we all have our ideas about worship. Some like it this way or that way, or I prefer this or that. And look, that's just normal, right? We all come in with our own perspectives. We come in with our, our own uh, kind of attitudes when it comes to worship, but there's one attitude I really want to address today because I have felt it, maybe you have felt it, but I have heard people say this uh, coming out of a worship service before where after having been through a, a worship service, they walk out and they might say this, I just, I just didn't get a whole lot out of it. You ever said that before? You ever felt that? You, just get, you go through an entire worship service and you come out and just, I just I didn't get a whole lot out of it. Uh, I have felt that at different points. Maybe you have felt that whether we said it out loud or not. Just, I just, I didn't get a whole lot out of it. And the question is, is that an appropriate thing for us to feel when it comes to worship? Because look, there will be times when that sentiment is appropriate to say, I just didn't get a whole lot out of it. Last week, I talked a little bit about going to the movies. Now it's I do like to go to the movies every now and then, but uh, we are in a stage of our life where going to the movies is just a large endeavor. It is, right? First off, it's, it's expensive to go to the movies today, is it not? It is ridiculously expensive because on top of the $400 they're going to charge you for two tickets to go to the movies, then there's like the food you got to buy and that's all jacked up in price. And then Alice and I are in a stage where we got to get a babysitter as well. So, I mean, the costs are just kind of stacking up. Right? Not to mention the fact we just don't have a whole lot of time to do this. We can't just go whenever we want. And so it's like a big deal to actually get ourselves to the movie. So if we do all of that and we mark out time and we get the babysitter and we pay the money and we get to this place, for it not to be a very good movie, that's frustrating, right? That is very angering to me. If we've done all of this stuff, I'm going to walk out of the movie and say, I just didn't get a whole lot out of it. Right and that's appropriate. That is an appropriate sentiment. It's okay to be frustrated because that is entertainment. Right? The whole point is is that I'm supposed to get something out of it. That's the deal. Hollywood makes movies that hopefully we like. That's why we make them, to so hopefully we will go and give them money. Movie theaters create environments that hopefully we want to be in, so we will give them money. They, they offer food that hopefully we want to eat, and so that we will give them money. The whole thing is that we would get something out of it. So if we don't get anything out of it, that's, that's the appropriate to go, hey, I'm a little upset. I didn't get a whole lot out of it. But there's other experiences where it's not okay to say that. Take birthday parties most of us have been to a birthday party before. Even as adults, you end up with a birthday party. Maybe it's like a work thing, right? We're going to celebrate somebody's birthday. But imagine asking your spouse or your best friend, hey, I heard you had that birthday party earlier today. How was it? Imagine what you'd think if they just looked at you and said, I just didn't get a whole lot out of it. I just didn't, you know, it's just not a great party. I just didn't get a whole lot out of it. That'd be kind of a jerk thing to say, would it not? Because guess what? It ain't about you. Birthday parties aren't about us. It's about somebody else. We're here to celebrate somebody else. We're honoring somebody else. It's not about us. We're not supposed to get anything out of it. Although with birthday parties, it's actually kind of cool. You end up do getting something out of it because normally there's cake and you get to eat something, right? Normally, even though it's not about you, you still benefit, which is why I like birthday parties. I really do, right? But when we walk in, our attitude shouldn't be to get something out of it. It's focused on somebody else. So here's my question. When it comes to worship, which one of those attitudes do you bring? Do we bring the movie attitude where it says, I'm expecting to get something out of this. It better be how I like it. It better be fulfilling. It better be exactly what I want. Or do we walk in more like a birthday party saying, this is not about me. I'm coming here to give and not to receive. Even though I might receive at the end of the day, I'm here to give and not to receive. Which attitude do we bring when it comes to a worship service? This is actually crucially important, as we're going to see in the text today. Uh, Not only for when we sing in our musical worship, but especially when it comes to observing the Lord's Supper which we're all going to do here in just a few minutes at the end of the sermon. And it's why we find ourselves in Ephesians, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Now, before I read the text to you today, uh, we need to figure out the context. We need to understand who we're talking to here in this letter. Uh, This is the letter to the Corinthians, and the Corinthian church was odd. Um, They were a new church, they were a vibrant church, they were a growing church, they were a very diverse church. Uh, And they were very proud of themselves. Uh, They were proud of their intellect. They were proud of their service projects. They were proud uh, of their their worship services and how cool they were. They they were proud of their wisdom and knowledge. They really thought they were rocking on all cylinders. And they could look at growth and, and the cool things happening spiritually in their midst to say, God is clearly blessing us. Everything is fine. We are awesome. They thought they were great. Paul was not as impressed. Uh, And Paul had spent some time with them and he had heard a report about them. And now he is writing them a letter to say, hey, listen, uh, there's some issues here uh, that are not really as good as you think they are. Uh, We truly need to address them. And specifically, he has a problem with how they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Now, when we think about the Lord's Supper in antiquity, we need to recognize that it's not like we're doing it today. It just wasn't. First off, this church was way smaller than us you're probably looking between 50 and 150 people. That's maybe a third of just this room. So, And I'm not even talking about all the kids and everybody else who's there. Just the people in this room, cut it by a third and maybe you're looking at the entire church at the church in Corinth. When they would do the Lord's Supper, uh, they wouldn't always do it in the context of a worship service. They, they had this big meal. They, they sometimes would call it a love feast where everybody would get together and they would have the Lord's Supper as a part of a larger meal. So they wouldn't just have a little wafer and a small cup. They would actually have a full meal and then this would have been part of it. But they did this most likely at somebody's house. Now think about that. How are you gonna get the whole church into somebody's house? they're probably going to the richest person's house because they would have had the largest house, the largest dining room. But even then, how are you going to fit everybody in the same house? That would have been very hard. And so now you have practical concerns. Hey, where does everybody sit? How does this work? And already this is where the problems begin. Uh, Think about Thanksgiving, right? And how everybody has to find a place to eat at Thanksgiving. Do you have a large family? Uh, my, my family growing up, my, my dad's side especially was very large. Uh, and if, when we had Thanksgiving, everybody shows up and you're just not going to eat at the main dining table. You're not. Unless you're 50 and up, you don't get to eat at that table, right? Because there's just not enough seats. There's too many family. And so if not, if you're not there, you get stuck at the kitty table. Man, when I was growing up, I think I was at the kitty table at least till I was 22. I mean, seriously. I mean, because there's no room, right? It's like, dude, you gotta be so much older to get up into here. You just can't. There's too many people. You just find a place to sit. Okay, the same thing is happening in the church. Okay, so what's happening most likely, uh, because again, we're trying to piece all this together. The host here, the guy who owns the house, probably the richest person in the church, who's opening up his home and trying to put all this on. Okay, he's probably there in the main dining room uh, and probably most of his friends are there with him. Right, so the people who are there with him, they're gonna probably congregate where he is because we typically congregate with people who are like us. And look, that's true in any culture that we're in. Have you noticed that this still happens for us as adults? Does this still happen for you? Because um, this happens, I, I see this sometimes like at work events. If you do like the work birthday thing, you ever notice that when everybody just goes and hangs out together, all the ladies go in one direction and the guys go in another, does that still happen for you? Like it's fifth grade all over again? Like nobody told him to do that. Like they still do it. I'm like, why are we segregating? What's going on? People just do, they kind of gravitate to their friends. They gravitate to people just like them. So the the rich folk are probably congregating there in the main dining room, or even, this is also possible, they might've been getting there early and having their own kind of big meal. Like they're having their own kind of big thing. And then when the rest of the church shows up, they're all kind of doing catch as catch can in different spots, Uh, but they're not eating what the rest of them are eating. It also might've been potluck where everybody's bringing stuff, but the rich folks, they're super rich food over here. And then the poorer folk, they're bringing their PB&J, and they're stuck over here. And their potluck is just very different than everybody else's potluck. But the, the, the reaction is this, or the, the upshot is this. Uh, the poor people are getting neglected, while the rich people, uh, it seems like they're, they're having a completely different experience. And, and look, that would have been honestly very normal in Rome. In Rome, that's just the way things went. In a social outing, a social dinner, that's just normal. And so the rich folk might have been thinking, "Hey, dude, this is normal. Nobody's going to mind. This is just the way things are." Well, people did mind, and it does matter, and Paul finds out, and he has thoughts. Uh, and so he writes this letter to say, "Hey guys, this is not what we need to be doing." So with all of that context, now let's read the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? about the other things I will give direction when I come. Now, let's just go ahead and start with the scary part first, all right? Uh, Because this is a disconcerting passage to many of us. In fact, if you read this before, you might have lost some sleep at night. Reading a passage like this, because what you might have read as we walk this through is that if you and I don't get the Lord's Supper right, God will kill us. Did you read that? Because that's what he said. And that is terrifying. And so we might've gone, whoa, wait a minute. I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. This is one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted passages than there have ever been all throughout history. So much so that there have literally been people in different pockets throughout Christian history who wouldn't even take the Lord's Supper for fear of eating in an unworthy manner. They would take communion once when they were saved and then once again on their deathbed because they would have somebody pray for them and absolve them of their sins, they would then take communion and die, right? Just to make sure that they did not do so in an unworthy manner. And look, if you look sideways at this text and squint a little bit, that might make a little bit of sense. But that is not what Paul is intending here. That's not what he's going after. And so what do we really do with this passage? How do we understand what's happening here? Uh, Well, let's look at what the problem really is. The problem for the Corinthians is this. Instead of focusing on the Lord and on the church, they're focusing on themselves. However we understand this problem, what's really happening here is that instead of focusing on the Lord and on the church, they're focusing on themselves. Their hunger, either their hunger physically or their hunger socially, has taken over their mindset And while they're going through the motions spiritually, they're thinking way more about themselves than they are about the Lord or his people. And that is the major problem here, right? And so let's look at verses 27 through 30 and let's break this down and see if we can really understand what's happening. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. Okay, uh, what are we looking for here? The big question is, how do I do this in an unworthy manner? What am I trying to avoid? What, what are the Corinthians doing that what makes them eating or drinking in an unworthy manner? And I think the answer is this. They are failing to recognize the Lord. They're failing to remember the Lord. They're failing to focus on the Lord in the midst of their celebration. And that is the main point here. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that that, that they're failing to see the Lord? They're failing to see the church. How do we know that that is what it means to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Well, on the one hand, there's the context. That's the problem that Paul is trying to address. Here's the second reason we know that's the answer and not something else. It doesn't work any other way. Because think about it. If you're fearful reading this text and say, Adam, I just don't want to come today. I don't know if I can come to the table. I need to examine myself. I just don't know if I'm good enough to come to the table. I don't know if I'm worthy to come to the table. That does not work at all. Because if the question of today is whether you or I are worthy to come to the table, I have an answer for you you're not. I'm not. If we have to be worthy to come to the table, it's gonna be a really empty table today. No one's coming because not one of us can claim to be worthy enough to come to this table. No one is worthy of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Nobody is holy enough to say, Adam, I am good enough. I've done my quiet time. I've done enough to come to this table. Everything that Paul says, that Christ says, that the gospel says flies in the face of that. The question today is not, are you worthy to come to the table? Christ makes us worthy by giving his life for us. He gives us himself. We are worthy because he makes us worthy. But the question today is not, am I good enough? Am I worthy enough to come to this table? You don't have to worry about that question. Now, let me add a quick sidebar though. And I do want to say this though. Look, for anybody here today, who is living in a consistent and unrepentant sin, I would not come to this table today. Now look, everybody in this room is a sinner, all of us. Every one of us is messed up. Nobody's good enough to come here. We're all working through sin. We're all tempted with sin. You may have wrestled with sin this week, but as long as you're wrestling and you're working on it, you are doing your best to follow after the Lord. That is all that is required. But if you are here today, and to Adam, I'm, in, I'm involved in a sin. I am consistent in it. I am unrepentant. I'm not gonna stop. I'm gonna continue doing this. I would not dare come to this table today because that would be literally trying to trample upon the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for us. It would be as if, You had a drug problem and you got arrested and your best friend bails you out of jail with his own money. He comes in and bails you out of jail. And then he says, hey, listen, I wanna give you even more money to set you up, to get you back on your feet. And you say, thank you. I'm so excited. Come with me. And you take his money and you take your friend and you go straight to your dealer and you get more drugs and you shoot up right in front of him. That's the kind of slap in the face we'd be giving to the Lord. If said, Jesus, I know you died for my sins. I'm in the midst of sin. I'm going to keep doing sin. I'm not even going to try to stop doing my sin. And we want to come up and take the elements today. God help you. I would not do that if I were you. But that's not Paul's concern here. In this passage and in this text, that's not his concern. His concern is not with unrepentant people, people who are sending their guts out and refusing to honor the Lord. That's not his concern at the table. He has a different concern. His concern here is that they're not recognizing the Lord. They're not remembering the Lord. He says, you are not recognizing what Jesus has done for us and what he is giving to us. Because only in Jesus Christ do we have salvation. Amen? The only reason we are worthy is because Jesus Christ has saved us. In fact, this would be the worst thing to come to the table today and think we are worthy to come to the table. That would actually be worse. If you're sitting there going, man, this whole reading plan thing, I am up to date. I get to come to the table today. That sin pattern I did, I have not sinned all week. I get to come to the table today. Man, I'm so much better than those other people and their sin patterns. I get to come to the table today. That attitude is actually worse. If you and I came today and said, I am worthy to come to the table, we're not. We are invited to the table, broken and sinful as we are by the one who is worthy and he is the one we ought to be focusing on. So what is Paul saying to us? Here's what I think he's saying. We need to examine our attitudes. We need to examine our attitude as you and I come to worship today. As we come to the table today, what's our attitude Are we coming to worship the Lord? Are we coming to receive the gifts he gives? Are we coming to give him honor and praise? Or do we come in with our own attitude, our own agenda, our own desires? Or do we come in saying, Father, I wanna put all my focus on you. I wanna react to you for who you are and what you have done. Because look, if we don't do that, that's where we do get to the scary part because he says there is a judgment. Look at verse 29. It says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, uh, body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What do we do with that? Adam, are you telling me that if, if people get sick then that's a sign of God's judgment in my life? That when people come down with a cancer or an illness, that's God's judgment in their life? No, no. Jesus has specifically asked this question and he specifically refutes it. He says, no, you cannot look at sickness and say this is God's judgment on someone's life. There's no way we can look at people's sickness and say this is God's judgment upon them. You cannot make that estimation. But in some cases, Jesus does allow or bring sickness in order to wake us up. Now, I can't tell you which is which, but Paul here is telling them, hey, listen, some of this has fallen upon you. God's trying to get your attention. He's trying to wake you guys up. How do you know that? We'll look at verse 32. Verse 32. He says, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Even this judgment that he brings, even the sickness that he's bringing, he's saying, I'm doing this for your good. I'm doing this to wake you up. I'm doing this to draw you back to myself. Even then, it's not really a punishment. He's using this as discipline in our lives. And this is a serious thing for us. Now, some of us might be feeling really good at this point. You're going, well, Adam, (laughs) I am excited because look, I really thought I was unworthy and I was kind of nervous about this. But if that's what it means, I think I'm good, man. I'm excited because guess what, Adam? I have not ignored any poor people this week. I have not. I have not neglected anybody at the table. I haven't done anything like that. So dude, I think I am good. Hang on. We need to examine our attitudes. Let's really look at our hearts. Are we bringing an attitude that focuses on the Lord, or do we bring attitudes that focus on ourselves? Because if our attitude as we come in today is like, well, I like it this way, or I wanted it to be that way, or I prefer it this way, or I think we should do it that way, if our attitude is all about ourselves and our preferences, okay, we're not really recognizing the Lord. If you come in today and just say, Adam, I think I am worthy to come to the table. I'm good enough, I've done this, and we just kind of come through and go through the motions as if we're good enough on our own, that's not recognizing the Lord. If you come here and you ignore the other people and say, Adam, I just want to come get my own thing. I don't really care about everybody else. I don't want to know anybody else. I just want to kind of do my own thing. Or maybe if you're worshiping online today and this is the exclusive way that you worship. It's not a one-off. It's the exclusive way that you worship. You literally can't partake of the table because I can't throw it to you. You can't get it to you there. But if you say, Adam, I don't want to be connected to a group of people. I don't want to be connected. I want to have my own specific experience. That is not remembering the body, the church that God gives to you that would be coming to the table in an unworthy manner. It is absolutely possible for us to do this. So, this morning, before we come to the table, let's examine our attitudes. Let's ask ourselves, man, am I coming with an attitude that recognizes the Lord and His people? So, I want to give you four things to kind of think through, four ways that we need to be remembering the Lord and His people. We're gonna remember the Lord and what he has done in the past and the present and also in the future. And then we're gonna remember his body as well. So let's start by examining our attitude when it comes to what the Lord has done for us in the past. Let's look, look back at verses 23 through 26. Hear what he says. This says, "'For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, "'that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, "'took bread, and when he had given thanks, "'he broke it and said, "'This is my body, which is for you.'" Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, a quick sidebar here. This is the oldest recorded verses that we have concerning the Lord's Supper. This is the oldest account we have that let us know what the early church was doing with the Lord's Supper. You may say, Adam, I don't know if your Bible's broken, but my Gospels have it way before this. We've seen the Lord's Supper before in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's correct in the way our Bible is ordered. But the letter of 1 Corinthians was written way before the Gospels. The letter of 1 Corinthians was here before the Gospels were written. Now that is incredibly interesting. Because think about what that means. Before the gospels were circulating, before the gospels were retelling the story, the church was already practicing the Lord's Supper. This was there from the beginning. Paul wasn't there for the Lord's Supper. He had to be taught, and then he is now passing this on to other churches like the Corinthians. And so for the very beginning, we see the early church practicing the Lord's Supper, which is why we continue to do it today. But there's a specific word here that's very important for us. And that word is remembrance. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 25, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Okay, so big question. What does that word remembrance mean? There has been thousands of years of debate on this word and what it's actually meaning and what we're supposed to take out of it. And look, I I cannot get you into the full uh, argument there. It would take way too much time uh, to do that. But look, you can go on one end and make it as weak as possible and say that this word remembrance simply means to remember, right? It's just a mental activity. I remember that this thing happened. It's just a commemoration. It's a remembering of a past act. Or you can go to the complete opposite side and say, no, it's transubstantiation. Adam, these elements are literally becoming the body and blood of Christ. There's a little miracle that happens in front of us and that's what is being given to us. And so you've got two poles there and there are other people in the middle. And again, I can't even begin to dive into this debate except to say that I believe that the truth is somewhere in the middle. It is certainly not transubstantiation going on, but it's also not simply a remembrance or a memorial of what is happening. There's something different happening. And I think a better way of really translating this word remembering would be to say this. When you and I remember the Lord at the table, we are identifying with who he is and what he did for us. We are identifying with who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And the reason I think that's a helpful way of understanding it is because that's what the early Jews did when they were celebrating the Passover. If you remember, the the first Lord's Supper, when Jesus is betrayed, happens during a Passover celebration. Do you remember the Passover? Uh, It was a specific annual festival that the Jews would do every single year that commemorated the Exodus. It was actually a reenactment of the Exodus, They would have a meal together and they would gather together. They would actually break bread and they would drink different cups of wine. But they were talking about the fact that they used to be slaves in Egypt. But God says, if you will take a spotless lamb and sacrifice it and put some of its blood on the doorpost of your house, God's judgment will pass over you. And then God is going to deliver you out of slavery and into freedom. They would walk through the Red Sea into freedom. And every year after that, they would have this Passover meal where they would sacrifice a lamb and they would eat it and they would put the blood on their doorpost. They would, they would actually go through this meal of saying, here's who we were. We were slaves and now we are set free. But as early Jews participated in this meal, they did not simply remember that this had happened in their past. They were encouraged to identify with the fact that this was their people, that we are them. We're not simply thinking about something that happened in the past. No, this is our people. This is our story. I need to commemorate this meal as if it had just happened to me. That's how all the early Jews would have approached Passover. That's how the disciples would have approached Passover. So when Jesus comes into Passover, he changes it and gives bread. And he gives a cup and he says, this is my body. This is my blood. Jesus becomes that spotless lamb. And by his blood, we are delivered not out of physical slavery, but out of spiritual slavery, not into physical freedom, but into spiritual freedom. And it's not just for the Jews. It's for anybody who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. To remember is to identify with what Jesus did and to recognize he did it for me he did it for you. So for you and I today, as we remember, he gives us the bread and he says, this is my body given for you. When you and I think about the bread, we need to recognize that Jesus's real body was broken for us. This was not a metaphor. He literally did this. He had a physical body and it had to be physically broken. This is the only way to save us. And Jesus said, even at that cost, I will gladly pay it because I love you. But I am doing this for you. Without us and without our sin, there would be no need for this breaking. But because of us and because of our sin, it required it. And Jesus gives his body to us. He says, my body is given for you. It is broken for you. When you and I take the bread, we are identifying with the fact that Jesus's real body was broken in the past, for my sins. My sins were there way back then. And then he gives us the cup. And he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He says, listen, my blood is gonna have to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Just like that lamb was shed in the Passover story. He says, I am the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's by my blood that God's judgment will pass over you and that I will deliver you into spiritual freedom. Jesus says, listen, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But he says, your blood won't cut it, but mine will. I will let my very blood be spilled to cover for our sins. Because you and I could not save ourselves, Jesus Christ lets His own blood be shed and poured out so that you and I can be saved. We are identifying with what Jesus has done. But guess what? It goes even one better. because he says, this blood is the new. It says the cup is the new covenant in my blood. We get a brand new covenant with the Lord. That's different from the old covenant, the old covenant that was broken by our own sin. If we started the same one again, we'd break it again. No, Jesus gives us a new covenant in his blood. And in this covenant, all of the requirements are satisfied in Christ himself. I don't have to worry about losing it. I don't have to worry about screwing it up. Why? Because Jesus is already taking care of his side and mine. When I give myself to him, all the requirements of the law are met in Jesus Christ. I never have to worry about losing my salvation when I surrender myself completely to him. It is a covenant that will not be broken even by me. It is a brand new covenant that you and I live in. This is what Jesus has done in the past. When we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are identifying with the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life for me, for you, for us. This is what we are identifying with. And so let's examine our attitude. Before we come to this table, let's examine our attitude. Do we come in recognizing that, remembering that what Jesus has done, he did for me? Do I identify with the fact that this table was created for me and I needed it? Do we honor and recognize what the Lord has done? Just for me, we can't just go through the motions. We need to remember what the Lord has done in the past. But guess what? That has effects in the present. We don't just remember what the Lord did in the past and identify there. We also identify with what the Lord is doing in the present. Because what happened back then is continuing to happen today. This is why we continue to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, a few minutes ago, you saw a baptism And Avonlea got baptized earlier. Annalise Bailey got baptized in the first service. That's a one-time deal. We're not gonna keep doing that for them. They've done baptism. There's no more need for that. But the Lord's Supper, we do again and again and again. Why? It's that constant reminder in the present that what God did way back then, he's still doing today. That what God did way back in the past, it still has effects in the present. I'm not just remembering that. I'm enjoying that. In this respect, uh, the Lord's Supper is very much like an anniversary. Uh, If you're married, you have an anniversary date, right? It's the anniversary when you got married. Guys, don't forget that. That's bad, right? It's it's Valentine's week. Don't forget that either. But look, uh, anniversaries, don't forget that. But listen, when you celebrate an anniversary, we're not just saying, hey, we got married so many years ago. That's not an anniversary. It is a recognition that the covenant that you began all those years before is still in effect today. That the covenant that you created between the two of you all those years prior is still impacting you today. When we come to this table, we're recognizing that the covenant that God made with us, he's still doing today at this moment. He gives us everything we need in him. When we come to this table, it's that recognition yet again that God gives us Everything we need in Him. It's not just a remembrance mentally, it's a participation in what He started. He's still continuing to do. This is what it means to remember the Lord. We're not just showing up and going through the motions. Therefore, we need to examine our attitude. Don't think about how you've come to the table before. How are you coming today? How do you come to the table today? Where's your heart today? You say, I don't, I don't feel very worthy. That's not required. None of us is worthy, but do I come today honestly saying, Jesus, I have needed you and I still need you today because my total hope is not in my own worthiness, it's in you and you are enough for me. You were enough then and you're enough today. Is that our attitude? Because that brings great joy to know that God is continuing to invite you to this table. He continues to bring you forth. He didn't say, man, I had high hopes for you when you got saved, but you have not turned out well. That is not God's attitude. Every time you come back to this table, it's that reminder of he still loves you. He still is with you. He still is in you. When you and I eat the elements in just a moment and you feel Those elements, as you you literally, you're, you're eating them, you're drinking them, you feel that going down. It's that reminder, Christ is in me right now. I am in him right now at this very moment. I am in him and he is in me. And I don't deserve it, but at this very moment, I am in him. I remember in the present what Christ has done for me and who he is and how much he loves me. Is that our attitude when we come to the table? And then thirdly, we look to the future because this isn't just about what he did or what he's doing it's about what he's going to do look at verse 26 in verse 26 it says for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes now that's interesting because did you see the future focus there When we eat of this table, we are proclaiming to the rest of the world, hey, our entire hope is in what Christ has done, what he is doing. But as we continually take this, we are showing the world, hey, there comes a day where we get to go to the real feast. We don't have this small meal. We get to go to the real feast where the bridegroom gets to eat with his bride, with us, the church, and there's going to be a true feast when all things are made right. We're going to get to feast with him at his table. That day is coming. And until he comes, we continue to partake of the Lord's Supper. Do you see the proclamation? It reminds us and the rest of the world, hey, if you're coming in here today, we're not putting our hope in our our wisdom. We're not putting our hope in our talents or our abilities. We don't put it in our facilities. We don't pull it in our cool ideas. Our only hope is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We proclaim his death that saved us all until he comes. It is the only hope for the world. Every time we take this, we continue to proclaim it. And guess what? We're gonna start participating in the Lord's Supper more regularly. You're gonna see that more regularly this year than we ever have. It's not gonna be weekly, but we're gonna have it more often than we've even had in the past. It's more opportunity, past, present, and future. We need to examine our attitudes. Do you want to proclaim to the world that Jesus Christ is the only hope that there is? Do you want to proclaim to the world that the only hope that matters Comes in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When you and I come to the table, physically, we get up and we come to this table and receive the elements, we are proclaiming to the world his death and resurrection until he comes. Is this our attitude? But then finally, we need to not simply recognize the Lord, we also need to recognize his body. And by body, he means the church. Now to see that, let's look at verses 28 and 29 because something very interesting happened and be very easy to skip over it. But I want to look in depth, look at verse 28 and 29 and notice something. It says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now there's a lot of talk in this passage about body and blood and bread and cup. You got all these different things. But notice what he does in this verse, in these two verses. Three times he mentions body and body and cup or, or body and bread, uh, a drink and cup. He mentions them in connection. So in 28, he says, eat of the bread, drink of the cup. 29, eats and drinks. Without discerning the body, eats and drinks, judgment upon himself. So he has eats and drinks three times, and then he has body by itself once. Now, why did he do that? You might think that when he says body right there in the middle, he's talking about his body like he's been talking about in the last couple verses. But if that were the case, why did he avoid talking about the blood? You might say, well, Adam, he's talked about it a lot. He's just kind of saving time. You know, he's talking fast like Americans, right? He's just kind of, he's abbreviating. But if that's the case, then why does he immediately in the next phrase mention eats and drinks again? He says eats and drinks, eats and drinks, body, eats and drinks. What does he mean when he's talking about the body? When he's mentioning the body in that verse, he's not talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about the body of Christ, his church. He's talking about his people. You say, Adam, how do you know that? Because that's the context of the whole problem. That's the problem that Paul's trying to address. That's what started him talking about this in the first place. He's gonna talk about it at the end of it. The thing he wants people to recognize is not simply the body and blood of the Lord, but also his body, the people of God. The people in Corinth were ignoring brothers and sisters. They were humiliating brothers and sisters. They didn't think they needed brothers and sisters. And so Paul says, listen, if you're gonna come in a worthy manner up to this table, we don't get to ignore anybody. We don't get to come here as individuals. It's not okay for us to say, Adam, I don't, I don't need a church. I don't like organized religion. I don't need anybody else. I can do this all by myself. I'm spiritual, not religious. I'm going to do this all by myself. Well, you can't do that as a Christian. Do you know why? God didn't build us that way. He says, if you're a believer in Christ, you are a part of a body. And praise God, here's what that means. You're not alone. You're not. If you feel alone today, you're not alone. Because God has made you a part of a spiritual family. Now, there's good and bad to that, okay? The good news is you get a spiritual family. The bad news is you get this spiritual family. Because these are, you might be looking at it going, these people, I don't know if I want to know help from these people. Look, we ain't perfect, okay? We got issues. I don't going to say we might have issues. No, we got issues. We do. But we have one significant advantage. You know what it is? We're real. Because here's where you don't get help from some phantom group of people you've never met before and never will. Some phantom help you think is gonna come help you that is not gonna materialize. God has given you the help. He's given you brothers and sisters. He's given you this body. And you need a particular local body of believers. If God's called you here. We are those people. Flawed as we are, we are those people. And we don't get to ignore anybody else. We don't get to say, well, I only want to be with, with my folks who are my age or people in my socioeconomic bracket or people in my personality or my gender or my race or my uh, cup of tea or my this or my that. I just want my clique. If I just have my own few people, I don't need the rest of the church. I just want my community group. Let me just have my own little group of people. I don't want anybody else that does not fly in the church of Jesus Christ. Can't. And so we got to examine our attitudes and say, when I come to church, am I ready to say, hey, God is connecting me with these people? He's connecting me with these brothers and sisters and they're connected to me. This is my spiritual family. I don't get to ignore or minimize or humiliate anybody in this congregation. Instead, I have to be looking out for them. This is why when we come, we get to come together as a faith family to partake. In just a few moments, when you guys come forward, you're gonna get to walk together with people who aren't like you. You might know some of them, you're not gonna know all of them. We're all going to come forward together as we partake together. This also, by the way, we don't give you little kits to take home for communion. Just do it by yourself. We don't do that. That's inappropriate because we don't do communion by ourselves. We do this together as a faith family. Why? Because God, when he saved us by dying on the cross, created a body, a church, and he wants us to be part of it. So when we come to this table, if we want to do so in a worthy manner and not an unworthy manner— we need to examine our attitudes, our attitudes toward the Lord. Why am I coming? Am I coming here ready to receive from him, putting my hope in him? Do I, do I remember his people? That I am a part of a larger whole? Because when I do so, this most amazing thing happens. As I give the Lord all the glory and as I worship him and I come with my attitude focused on him and on others, this amazing thing happens, I actually get what I need as well. God in his grace, better than cake, says, I'm gonna give you what you need and more. Even though this isn't about you, I'm gonna provide you with all you need and more. And so he invites us to the table to take care of us as we come with our hearts and minds focused on him and focused on the church.